And the Bible says again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said to Satan, hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that feareth God and sheweth evil, and still, I'd circle those words, and still he holdeth fast, just as God told Satan he would. Still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movest me against him to destroy him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Put forth thine hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And he smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot and to his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself with all. And he sat down among the ashes. If you look, once again, we're reintroduced to a conversation in heaven. And Job, again, was not privy to this conversation. He did not know what was taking place. He did not hear what we hear by way of the text. But Satan, once again, comes to present himself, the accuser of the brethren, God once again brings his attention to Job and almost the same wording says, here's a man that is perfect. Here's a man that is upright. Here's a man that fears God and eschews evil. The only addition is this, a commentary on how Job had stood firm, held fast. And he said, his integrity has not changed. Will God give us? Christianity that can withstand the trial and the troubles of life and our integrity comes out intact despite what we are dealing with. And all of us have moments of weakness during a trial. Those should be very private moments, not public moments. Amen? But those are times we should rely more upon God than ever before. And here's what a trial does. It will build us, but often it reveals us so God can deal with whatever he needs to in our lives, a refining process. And in this case, although he was called perfect and one that issued evil and feared God, we know that God was going to deal with Job in the areas of pride. And we see how Job responds to that in chapter 42, which we'll read later. But here's what Satan says. We've taken from him his entire ranch, all his uh, life's earnings, his wealth, his source of income, and his children. And Satan says, you have one area that's been left untouched, and if you touch that area, he will curse you. I believe Satan was just not making an accusation, but convinced of the fact. And all of a sudden, Job finds himself in a horrible state. The Bible says so horrible that these boils and whatever he was dealing with, as he scrapes himself, his friends come. They struggled to uh, 
identify this man that they knew so well. It had so affected his appearance. And uh, we're, we're not talking about uh, a rash. We're not talking about something superficial, but something that was so severe, it created in Job suicidal thoughts. He questioned why God had allowed him to live and continue to live. He sought death and asked God, why don't you just let me die? So this was a severe trial, although everything that we read in chapter 1 would cause most to quit, fold up their tents, and curse God. And Job, the Bible says, maintained his integrity. And here's what happened, verse Eight, he took a pot shirt to scrape himself with all. What a miserable condition. You have to remember, we're talking about thousands of years ago. There was no doctor really to help him. Uh, no medicine, no hospital, no pain medication. Whatever he was dealing with, he was dealing with very, very alone. And he sat down among the ashes. Now everyone here knows what ashes are. If you're sitting in a pile of ashes, my guess is these are ashes from the animal sacrifices that he had performed daily. I don't know where else you're going to find enough ashes to sit in. This is not from a meal. This is not from a moment. But a pile of ashes... I suppose with the spiritual man that he was, he was looking for a place where he had previously met with God. These were not recent ashes because his animals had all been taken. He, although wanting to sacrifice, had no animals to sacrifice. But this was a meeting place with God. He finds himself back there. And then uh, I want you to see verse 9. And this is really what I want to bring to everyone's attention tonight, verse 9, then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Now, I want to speak to you in defense of one of the most maligned women in all the Bible. I want to speak to you tonight on behalf of Miss Job, whom... I have only heard negative commentary towards 52 years of life sitting in church, at least 45 years of those at an age where I could remember what was preached. And I have yet to hear a single positive word concerning this woman. I've heard things that were so drastically negative they even questioned her belief in God her love for God, any fear for God. And uh, I want you to consider several things tonight. Put yourself in her spot. Now, I do not believe this woman was a wacko jacko because those women are formed over time by the absence of a spiritual leader in the home that was her father or the absence of a husband that is a spiritual leader to guide and direct her to think straight when life would lead her to think wrongly. And in this case, we know that the greatest spiritual leader of her day lived in her house 
And I do not believe, and we'll see this over the course of both chapter 2 and chapter 42, that this was a woman under incredible emotional stress and strain. You want to be careful, we judge this woman based on 10 words made after 10 children died. 10 words and a judgment is made. Now think about this woman, what she's just experienced. We talk about the loss of everything in their lives that was not just their wealth, but their income. And for a woman, this alone would literally cause the emotional collapse. If a husband were to say, I wrecked the car, I lost my job, they canceled my pension, and we just got a lawsuit for $2 million against us. Merry Christmas, woman. Cause an emotional collapse. But this was her having to see these servants come through the door, burst through the door, one at a time, with the news not just of uh, oxen being rustled and camels being stolen and sheep being consumed by fire, but the death of all these people, servants that they loved and helped and took care of, uh, suddenly lives were devastated. And she knows tomorrow I wake up with a husband who has absolutely no source of income. I was it, yesterday married to the wealthiest man on the planet, and today I am married to the poorest man on the planet. And that's a devastating emotional blow. Now, at this stage, I believe they were in their 60s. It's one thing to deal with poverty in your 20s. But when you've come through the valleys of life and you've dealt with the financial struggles, a wife at this stage is looking for some, some kind of financial stability. She wants a home with decorations, not bare walls. She wants leather furniture, not $30 couch found at a garage sale. She wants stainless steel, not a $200 fridge that barely keeps things chilled and other things frozen. <laughs> not because it has a freezer, but simply because the placement of the items in that fridge determines how cold or warm they actually are. She would occasionally like a purse of a marquee brand. Not because it matters that much, but simply because it does matter at her age. <laughs> it doesn't carry things differently, but it helps her feel better. She would like a few additional pair of shoes. Not that she needs them, but it's nice to have a match with each dress in the closet. All men at some stage of life have gone into a store and marveled at the cost of a purse that would rival the cost of a four-wheeler. <laughs> now, men don't need much, 
Most men would be willing to live in a house as 10 by 10 as long as there's a nice mattress, a sink and a shower, a fishing pole and a rifle. <laughs> a good life includes a big deer rack. Amen? But for a woman, there has to be curtains and blinds, pillows, not 10 or 20, but several thousand. It has to take at least 20 minutes to make the bed and 20 minutes to unmake the bed. Amen? And the couch becomes a struggle as you look for a spot and realize those cushions are more precious and of greater value than you are. And when that is gone, for Job, possibly it wasn't a big deal, but for Miss Job, that was a very big deal. Her security in a single day, a single hour. A man may say, I'll go shoot a rabbit and we'll eat lunch. But a woman says, how am I going to invite anyone over to the house? Everyone in town knows we are broke. We are busted. We have a carriage, but no animal to pull it. We have three servants, but no job for them to do. We have wood to cook food, but we don't even have food to cook. Have you ever considered her state? What if you ladies got this kind of news from your husband that you just faced absolute financial ruin? You have no transportation. You have no income. And everything you accumulated over the course of your life was now gone. You tell me you would be smiling, rejoicing, hugging, celebrating, and talking sane? Possibly not. And let's, let's move on to something of greater value. If it were just her possessions, this would be devastating enough. But that last servant that came in gave her the news. Your ten children are dead. And in a mother's mind, okay, the stupidest question in all the Bible was when Hannah's husband came to her and said, Am I not worth More than a child to you, don't ever ask that question because you won't like the answer. No. The answer is no. You're not. Ten children? Job was shook and Job was devastated. I am a family man. I appreciate the emphasis and on the family in this church, you guys know we emphasize family. I love my kids. I enjoy our home being a refuge. I love the time that we have together. And I hate now that my wife was right. One time in 
our marital arguments. She wanted five children. And we had, we had three. And she was right. But Ashley blew that. Ashley's the culprit. I have a little child and we're sitting in hospitals and dealing with open heart surgeries and after her second open heart surgery and she's gotten so close to the valley of death and she has taken us right to the precipice of a funeral on several occasions. I looked at my wife and I said, babe, I am not emotionally strong enough to deal with this again in another child. And when the doctors told us, it is most likely that your following children will have severe heart conditions as well, I tapped out. I said, babe, I can't sit in these hospitals. I can't deal with these doctors. I cannot grieve on this level. I'm not strong enough to do this again and again and again. But looking back, if I had it all to do over again, I would have a couple more. So those of you that are young, have more kids. That's, I'm not Dr. Camillary. I'm not telling you 10 to 15. I'm just saying to have more. Amen. Although I enjoy my kids, I promise you this. A mother's love is much deeper than a father's love. Yeah, right. Friday night, I went to bed. And my wife looked at me and said, I'm not going to bed. And I knew why. I said, what time are you going to bed? When Ashley arrives home, she was working late. My argument to my wife is, she's a big girl. You pray. You make sure the car is running well and has good tires. But you go to bed and go to sleep. But that woman will not go to bed and go to sleep unless her kids are safely in their rooms. And you have a woman who is sitting there with a heart so broken, no one is going to piece it back together. She can't even imagine 10 funerals. She can't wrap her mind around. I don't know of any other woman. Maybe there is one, another woman on the planet that has had to face the death of all 10 children in a single incident in a single day. So I want you to put the context of this woman not saying these words after she lost everything that she had ever possessed and then lost her 10 children. This is post-funeral. She did not say these words when she heard about the death of her 10 kids. There's another attack coming, and that is now her husband, who she loves and reveres. His whole health is absolutely devastated. She watches the poor man can you imagine how pitiful the sight is? Yes. He's sitting in the ashes of the potsherd, scraping himself and crying out in pain. He talks about his tears. He talks about his desire to die. The Bible talks about his appearance being altered. Uh, 
Now, I want you to think about her words in this context. Ladies, you tell me what you would say if the man that you loved was this sick and you were his caretaker and day after day he said in private, I wish I were dead. I don't want to live this way. Every man has pride and every man wants to be able to take care of his family and not only had he lost all of his possessions now he's in a spot where he can't even if he desired to work and rebuild he can't he is physically left with nothing there's no energy there's only pain he gets up every day and faces the same disease and she looks at him in pity her friend, her husband, her provider, her spiritual leader is left a broken man with absolutely nothing. Because when everything is taken, if he had his health, there was a possibility of a comeback, of a rebuild. At this point, there's no possibility, there's no hope, there's only brokenness. Now, here's what I want you to do. Put her words in that context. Let's reread her words. Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Now, this is a compliment, and most of us don't even realize it. She was looking at a husband who had been an incredible spiritual leader for years, and even heaven knew it, and God knew it, and God had such confidence, he told Satan, I'll pick up that hedge, I'll remove his protection, I'll eliminate the blessings, and you can do whatever you desire. He is not going to change his love for me, his fear for me. All those things that have made him into the spiritual giant that he is will not be shook by the earthquake that is Satan. And she looks at that man and says, after everything you have dealt with, you have not changed at all. Why don't you seek death and maybe the only way to do that is to curse God and let him just finish you off. Now look what it says, verse 10. Here is my defense because I believe we have a biblical defense for Job's wife. Look what it says, verse 10. He said unto her... Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. Now hold on for a second. He didn't say you're a foolish woman. He separated and put her in a different category from those that are foolish. He didn't say, woman, I, I'm, I'm tired of battling with you and I'm tired of your words and your mindset and I'm tired of your craziness. He said, uh, I'm not used to having you speak like this. I've heard other women talk crazy, but not my wife. And with compassion and love, he said, 
Woman, this isn't you speaking. This isn't what I normally hear my wife say. But he put it in the context of the weight of the moment, the frustration of life, the overwhelming circumstances. And he said, woman, I'm going to help you out. Something just slipped through your mouth that sounded a little bit crazy. And this is not you. This is the moment. Let's put it in a box. Let's tape it up and burn it. But he put it in its context. He looked at his wife and said, that's how foolish women speak. You're not one of them. And let me help correct your thinking. Now, men, this is an incredible moment of instruction for us as spiritual leaders. Because I promise you, if you live with that woman into her 60s, and it won't take 60 years, it may only take 60 days. For some of you, it may only take 60 minutes into marriage. Here's what I believe. He went a long time into his marriage, and the circumstances had to be brutal in order to get her to speak like this. But here's what he said. He was gentle in saying, that's not you. That's the way foolish women speak. And then he said a word of correction and encouragement. What does he say? What shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. Job said, I'm not going to fall into this trap, and honey, I'm not going to let you fall into this trap. As a spiritual leader, we may have a weak moment, but it doesn't change the goodness of God. Amen. Now, there are many other clues. Let's read the next one before we go to chapter 42. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place, Eliphaz, the Timonite, Bildad, the Shuai, Zophar, the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, men of good intentions, it doesn't mean they were wise or spiritual, it just means they had good intentions. When they lifted their eyes afar off, and what? This sickness had so changed his physical appearance, they did not even recognize the man as Job. They saw him, they wept, they ran everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days, seven nights. None spake a word unto him. All they did was grieve. Now, we're going to fast forward to chapter 42 for the sake of time. We know how these men spoke, hurtful, harmful. Job called them miserable comforters. All right? Now, this is the end. God has worked in Job's heart and life. We do not know the time frame here. Many would say six to 12 months. I don't suppose to know. God doesn't make it clear Here's all I know, that God limited this time of suffering to once again restore Job. And uh, I'm here thankful that God uh, is the deliverer. 
How many of you have come through problems and you look back and you can't even remember the problem? It's just at the moment, it was overwhelming, it was devastating. And we talk about problems, we're not talking about things that you can solve or resolve. We're talking about things way beyond your control that only God can fix. And God's in the business of fixing problems. Now, chapter 42, verse 6, Job states, makes this statement, Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He has humbled himself. And now, this is another statement on the behalf of Job's wife that I want you to see. It was so after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to life as the Timonite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. God is going to rebuke these three and say, What you said was wrong and hurtful and harmful. And guess what? Only Job can fix this, and Job is going to have to pray for you. Therefore, taking you now seven bullocks, seven rams, go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your fall, in that you've not spoken to me this thing which is right, like my servant Job. God continues to hold Job in high esteem, and he's rebuking these three and saying, you, you guys spoke against Job as if he held some sin in his life that I was correcting. No, I'm holding him up and saying, Satan, you cannot break this man. He's unbreakable. His integrity, his faith, it's unbreakable. Now, I know we're going a little bit longer tonight, but that's because we're walking in the missions conference, and I don't want to have to pick this up three weeks from now. Go back with me, Job 19, 23. I want you to see something, the strength of Job's faith. Now, we know in chapter 13, verse 15, uh, Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's an incredible statement. Most of us could not say that honestly. Job could and did, and we know it was honestly spoken. What we often do is read Job 19, uh, verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. Now, this is an incredible text that commentators, young people be very careful about commentators, most of them question Scripture instead of stating the obvious they deny that Job actually understood biblical concepts concerning a redeemer and the resurrection and eternal life, but he did understand those things. But here's what I love, the verses that are often overlooked or ignored are the previous verses, starting in verse 23. Job says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Job is saying, I, I wish the world could hear how I really felt. Well, guess what? God's going to answer that request. Hey, he's going to pen your words in eternal scripture. Here's, here's what I believe he was saying. I, I wish my audience is small and maybe right now it's just my wife and even my friends. They just want to talk and they're not, they're not willing to listen. But if I had a platform, if I had a radio show, if I had a TV program, I'd want the world to know this thought. I believe in that phrase when he said, oh, that it was graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock. I believe he's talking about his epitaph over his grave. Oh, I put this on my tombstone. What, Job? What do you want everyone to know? What do you want the world to hear? Amen. 
And then here it comes. What's he say? I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And people cannot wrap their minds around how did Job, before the Bible was written and before biblical revelation and before the New Testament was penned, before Isaiah 53, before any of this was revealed, how did he have special revelation? He had a special walk with God. Here's how Job survived this. He knew the principles of eternity that his Redeemer did live. And that in eternity, he had something better waiting for him. And although his body was beginning to decay and even decompose because of this disease, he said, I've got something better waiting for me. Now, hold on for a second because we're talking about Job's wife. I don't believe she had the same level of revelation. Here's why I respect the pastor's wives and the missionary wives. Because Doyle Johnson and Matt Johnson and Brother St. Pierre and so many of these that we have coming in when Brother Sisson went to the Philippines, he had a special calling from God. But that wife did not share the same calling. She's not called to preach, not called to pastor. She simply surrendered, and she's walking the Muslim territory. And there, those beginning years, buildings were exploding, and people were dying, and many were saying, what in the world are you doing in General Santos? Now, for Brother Sisson, he could say, I've been called of God. But what about Mrs. Sisson? Had no special revelation. And while Job had a supernatural revelation from God about his Redeemer, and I'm sure Job shared this with his wife, but for Miss Job, it didn't come directly from God. It came from a hurting husband. Here's a woman that is actually incredible in, in the way she dealt with this because most would be totally destroyed. And you'll find out, chapter 42, she was not. Look what it says, chapter 42. So God is rebuking Job's friends, telling Job, you're going to have to Make a sacrifice for them. My servant Job shall pray for you, verse 8. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly. Verse 9, so a life as the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, Zophar, the Namathite went, did according to the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. And the Lord what? Famous verse. What's it say? Turn the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Now, Why? Why does God highlight this? Yes. He said, those three buddies of yours were messed up. They thought they were spiritual and they weren't. They thought they had a word from me and they didn't. They said things that sounded spiritual and it actually wasn't. And I want to rebuke them. And I not only want to rebuke them publicly, I want to rebuke them and put it in eternal scripture so that the whole world knows your three buddies are messed up puppies. Yeah. 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 And, 
in order for all this to be turned, you need to pray for them. And they need to make things right. You need to offer. Job had no animals to offer. He was still living in absolute abject poverty. He said, tell those boys to bring some animals. You make a sacrifice. And I'll turn your captivity. Now, hold on for a second. If his wife had so messed up, where is the rebuke from God? Where is the rebuke? There's no rebuke. Three men, open rebuke. And for the woman that sat. And it's so often attacked. God said, I'll deal with those three friends that seem so spiritual and are not. But your wife, she's made it through and she has taken it on the chin and she's dealt with the funeral of her 10 children and she's stayed strong. Now, here's another reason why we know she did okay because God blessed her in a greater way than he blessed Job. Look what it says. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends, and also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now he was rich before, now he's filthy rich. If you have this many animals on a farm, it's filthy. He was officially filthy rich, amen? That means Miss Job was filthy rich. Now she didn't have coach. What's the purse that costs twice as much as coach? What? Louis Vuitton. Now she's carrying the first and original Louis Vuitton. One on each shoulder. Camel hair. Then came there unto him all his brethren, all his sisters, and all that had been. Now, let me ask you this. If this woman is messed up and out of her mind and had emotional collapse, who's coming to the house to party with her? No one I know, especially not his brethren. But they all come. They did eat bread with him in the house. And they bemoaned. Now, let me just say this. Ladies, there's, I'm trying to hurry tonight, but I'm really not. Because I'm going to obey the Holy Spirit of God and read these two chapters. You are blessed. Now, she was living a blessed life. That all changed for 12 months. She had servants, but so do you. You have servants, surely. Your life's good. Hmm. I don't have servants. Don't lie to me, women. You have a machine that washes your dishes. <laughs> you don't gather wood, light a fire, and bring in the wheat. Uh-huh. You have servants that prepare and prepackage and preplant, and you buy it. You stuff it in an oven. An oven, you hit a button with a timer. <laughs> you don't have to worry about it going from 300 degrees to 400, back to 200. It's an even 350. You, 
And if you don't like that servant, you can go to one of these who flung chat home, pay away, Mickey D's. Right? Uh huh. You got servants. I don't have servants. I, I vacuumed for the first time in years yesterday because we made a mess and I didn't want my wife to see it. I just confessed. But I found out why she vacuums so often. I pulled out that vacuum. It's like it does it on its own. You just like, I'm like, this is not what I remember as a kid. I mean, it was work. You think plowing fields is difficult? Vacuum with one of those machines from 20 years ago. Like, I mean, it's a workout. Who needs a gym membership? But no, I got this thing my wife uses. No wonder she vacuums every day. It was like, whoa. I wanted to sit on it and let me take it around the house. I was like, giddy up. Have you seen the pictures of the ladies down at the creek? No wonder those clothes only lasted a couple months. <laughs> Smell like you were living in a river when you <laughs> dried them in the sun, right? Now you got servants. You throw them in a machine, you push a button. And, and if you time it right, you don't even have to iron it, just like fluffs them and puffs them and... And if you don't want to hire them, you take them down to another servant. Call the dry cleaner. Can, can we be, we don't even want to be honest tonight. In 2023, we all have servants. Mm -hmm. It's a good life. And that was taken from her. And life got awkward. Life got strange and life got painful. And the noise had stopped. Her kids were fun-loving and Christian. It was a honest kind of fun-loving. And that was gone. And the house was quiet. And God says, you know what, Miss Job? You did well. So Job I will bless, but you I will bless beyond. Look what it says. Last phrase. Every man gave him a piece of money. Well, who's going to get that? Miss Job. And everyone in the earring of gold, who's going to wear that? It's not just Louis Vuitton. Uh, Miss Job came to town. Who's Miss Job? The one with the big golden earrings. She only has like 50 pair. Now, is it, God doesn't exaggerate, everyone. If she had 100, 200, 300 people come to the house, she had 100 sets of earrings. Golden earrings, Hannah, not gold plated. Yours are fakey. Gold. The kind that make your ears sag because of the weight. Of 24 carat. 
Uh-huh. Yours don't even make your ears sag. <laughs> if they ain't shaking, <laughs> they're faking. <laughs> Verse 12. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen. She had leather everything. Amen. And verse 13, she had seven sons, three daughters. Now, here's how you know you're blessed. She's 60 years old. She's not one to have 20 more kids. A kid every two years? She's having kids bumping 90? No, thank you. She got 10. She got 10 in heaven waiting for her, 10 on the earth, yep. right? Yep. Now, okay, Scripture never does this unless it's trying to get our attention. Verse 14, another reason why we know she is blessed. She has three daughters. Jemima, don't do this to your daughter. <laughs> the parents in this day and age and the names they pick, I'm like, please don't do that to your child, but they do. Jemima, Kezia, Karen Hapak. <laughs> now you say, how do you know they're blessed? Okay, you got to remember in Scripture that the women were the ones that gave the names of their children, and they did it based on their emotional frame of mind at the moment. Uh, Jemima. You know the meaning of Jemima? Dove. You know dove is? Peace. Here's a woman that's just gone through all of that, and her first baby girl, you know what she names her first baby girl? Peace. This is called a frame of mind. She's saying, with all I've dealt with and the death of my kids, and I've come through the other side, and instead of a bitter old woman that's lost her mind, she says, I'm going to name this one Peace because that's the way I feel and that's the way our house runs. Look at the next one, Kezia. You know what Kezia means? Sweet fra fragrance. But you're talking about someone in, in their 60s or 70s and all of life folded up on her and her world fell apart, and she comes out the other side and says, my life at this moment is just one big sweet fragrance. Then it says, Karen Hepuch, that's child of beauty. Life's beautiful. My children, all ten. Do you see what's happened? This woman has been so maligned. When the fact is, maybe we mentioned three things. Number one, don't ever judge someone on a single moment and a single meltdown and a single statement because you'll find yourself in a moment of crisis and you won't want anyone to judge you at that moment. And the whole world has judged Miss Job on her lowest moment, a single statement where her husband was not even frustrated by what was said, but was gentle in the rebuke. And if you don't want judged at your lowest moment, don't judge someone else based on 10 words after 10 kids and 10 funerals and the loss of every earthly possession she owned and a husband that's fighting for his life. That's not a time to judge a person. I would always, number two, consider the context of the words that are spoken. 
Okay, when you know everything surrounding her comment, you can even hear a change in the tone of the way it was said. And you might too be quick to forgive because let me ask you what your wife would say at this moment. It would sound a whole lot crazier, I promise you that. And then let me say number three, life will get a whole lot better at some point. Talk to that person then, and you will probably find a totally different person. Sure. Problems don't last forever. So if you find someone in the valley and they speak in a way that you feel is devastating, don't even consider their words. Consider the moment and say, I'm going to get back with you when things get a whole lot better. I'm not going to judge you based on this statement. And when life is good, go back and have a coffee. And you're going to be introduced to a person that you didn't recognize because you took a picture at their very lowest moment in life. 